Today on Against the Grain, Scottish anarchist Stuart Christie, who died in August of 2020, lived a life deeply committed to the power of radical ideas and actions. And his life in many ways reflects the fortunes of classical anarchism from the Spanish Revolution to the New Left. Anarchist publisher Ramsey Kinnan discusses Stuart Christie's Life and Times. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. The Scottish anarchist writer, publisher, and militant Stuart Christie was no stranger to controversy. Arrested for trying to assassinate the Spanish dictator Francisco Franco, Christie was released from prison by an international campaign involving the likes of Jean-Paul Sartre and Bertrand Russell. He later was accused of being a member of the militant group dubbed the Angry Brigade. But Christie's most subversive acts were arguably his ability to keep the internationalist flame of class struggle anarchism alive decades after the Spanish Revolution and to bring together multiple generations of anarchist activists across Europe and far beyond. Ramsey Kinnan, himself an anarchist publisher and militant who grew up in Scotland, joins me today to discuss Christie. Kinnan is the founder of PM Press, which has published Christie, and I should disclose that I have a connection to PM. Ramsey, Stuart Christie was born in 1946. Into what world was Christie born and did he grow up in? So Stuart was born, obviously, literally, into the, the, the post-war generation, post-war being the Second World War. As a marker, the, the Second World War is a marker of many, many things. Um, but in terms of the history of, of working class movements, it marked the the final conclusive defeat in many ways of the organized working class um, in terms of the left and the history of of organized labor and working class movements the first world war is seen largely accurately as the typical end of those mass working class movements um, particularly with the majority of the working class in America and in Europe uh, on both sides of the conflict, kind of joining in, just uh, foregoing the, the working class of the world knows no country and internationalism in favor of, of the, the false flags of nationalism, shall we say. Perhaps more importantly, um, in the trajectory of Stuart Christie uh, and of the anarchist part of, of the workers' movement worldwide, the, the Second World War put the final nail in the coffin of the mass movement that was Spanish anarchism. Um, in, the, in the South, in, in both Latin America and South America and in Southern Europe, the anarchist movements lasted a couple more decades than their counterparts uh, elsewhere. And in Spain, it culminated with the Spanish Revolution or Spanish Civil War, call it what you will, um, which started in 1936 as a reaction to the, the, the General Franco seizing a coup against the Republican government. The coup was thwarted by, um, largely by the anarchists who were organised in the CNT, the Anarchist Trade Union, which at the time had three million members and was by far the biggest um, labour organisation in Spain. Franco and the Western powers, who either stood by or, in the case of Mussolini's Italy and uh, Hitler's Germany, actively aided Franco, um, basically uh, crushed the, the, the overt active um, struggle of the, of the Spanish working class in Americanism. So the post-war uh, Europe in particular saw both a, a, a literally and physically devastated um, Europe, but it also was the, 
the the culmination of this series of attacks on on the organized working class it wasn't completely destroyed and hence Stuart uh, grew up in a milieu um, in, in Glasgow in Scotland on the west coast of Scotland and Glasgow itself has had a long tradition of, of working-class militancy particularly uh, in the in the shipyards on the Clyde uh, there's Red Clydeside, there was also John McLean and various other. So he moved, as, as many people do, moved fairly quickly as a, as a teenager from a mainstream, shall we say, entryway through politics, through the, the Young Labour Party, uh, and then moved rapidly le leftwards. He was a member of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament uh, and then um, discovered anarchism. Um, which has a long, long history in uh, in Glasgow. Um, and at the time, as a teenager, he moved to to London, as many Scottish people do, to find work. And when he was in London, came into contact with um, some of the myriad networks of Spanish anarchist exiles that were uh, had found themselves in London as they were scattered all over the world after the end of the. You mentioned the Spanish Revolution of 1936, and I wonder if you could explain a bit more about the tremendous significance of that revolution for anarchists well beyond the borders of Spain and, and really for the anarchist tradition. The Spanish Revolution um, of 1936, which was finally crushed, I guess, with the uh, officially at the end of the, the Spanish Civil War in 1939, but realistically it was crushed by 1937, uh, largely by by the so-called Republic and its um, Russian-backed allies. The significance of the, of the Spanish Revolution for anarchists and anarchism, I think, would be of, the, of a similar resonance and significance for the, the, the the, the Bolsheviks and the Russian Revolution of 1917. Meaning this was a cataclysmic revolutionary event and much like the Russian Revolution, it was a cataclysmic revolutionary event which all the eyes of the world were turned. And most of the world tried to actively engage with. Um, actually, the, the Spanish anarchists um, as I mentioned before, were this uh, by far the most powerful and organized force in Spain, and hence were able to defeat the initial uh, putsch or coup attempt by, by Franco. And it was the anarchist trade union organized militias, most famously the, the Deruti column, uh, led by the legendary anarchist uh, leader, that actually fought the uh, basically fought the, 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 the Franco's forces, um, the, the nationalists so-called, to, to a standstill. And that's why the war continued for several years. Um, the Spanish anarchists deliberately, so people flocked uh, from all over the world to fight in Spain. Again, most famously in the West would be the, the communist-led and recruited international brigades. Uh, but similarly, uh, anarchists and other revolutionaries um, came from all over the world. Uh, again, probably most well known would be George Orwell, who documented his experience fighting with the Trotskyist militia, the Pum, um, in uh, in his book *Homage to Catalonia*, which again some folks may have seen uh, a cinematic version of that. It was uh, Ken Loach's *Land and Freedom*. The anarchists actually uh, at the time argued that they did not want uh, anarchists from all over the world to come and fight in Spain and quite the opposite in, in many ways uh, prefacing or presaging the the, the 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 leftist slogan of the 60s in America that we you know we want one two three Vietnams here in the West so the anarchists similarly at the time in the in 1936 actually suggested to their comrades all over the world that they concentrate uh, where they lived and where they understood the, the, the terrain and what was going on and that they should fight for anarchism 
you know, where they were from, and not all come to all come to Spain. Despite that, of course, many uh, many anarchist militants went to Spain, particularly those that were fleeing the already fascist terror in in Italy and Germany. Um, so this was a, a, a landmark, a historic, an earth-shattering world event, um, and the what the anarchists achieved in the kind of six to eight to nine months was not only fighting the Francoist forces to a standstill and actually rolling back some of the the, the material gains or the, the land that the, the, the nationalist uh, Franco forces had grabbed, but more importantly, um, they seized the time, so to speak, to actually implement perhaps the most thoroughgoing revolution um, that the world has ever seen to date. Um, so when they were um, liberating land, so to speak, they were not only kicking out the, the old landowners, but they were encouraging and giving the, the, the peasants on the land the, the wherewithal, the means to actually um, create and further their own revolution. In some cases, so they collectivized the land, um, they collectivized heavy industry in places like Barcelona, uh, again, the old cliche is that um, the only time the trams ever ran on time in Barcelona was when you know they were collectivized by the anarchists in 1936. But so across Spain, you know, millions of people actively took part in this um, fundamental thoroughgoing revolution. I say of which arguably the world has never seen anything before or since. And that's the voice of Ramsey Canan founder of AK Press and PM Press, talking about the late Scottish anarchist publisher and writer Stuart Christie, who died in August of last year. And we're talking about the ideas that shaped Stuart Christie. And we're going to take a listen now to an excerpt of an interview that uh, you, Ramsey Canan, did with Stuart Christie on this program in 2011 on the 75th anniversary of the Spanish Revolution. In the big latifundist areas, such as Andalusia in the south, the south of Spain, anarchism had a much had a much greater influence, mainly because of the nature of the class system in the countryside. I mean, you had landlords who were, uh, you know, believed they had absolute authority over the peasants, and they treated them abysmally. So there was a much greater demand need for, or call for uh, revolutionary politics. And the organization that offered social revolution and justice was in fact the anarcho-syndicalist CNT. And that was the late Stuart Christie speaking about the Spanish Revolution. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. And today we're speaking about the late Scottish anarchist publisher and writer Stuart Christie. I'm joined by Ramsey Canan, publisher himself of anarchist literature. So you have been describing the importance of the Spanish Revolution for the anarchist tradition. And of course, following the defeat of the Spanish Revolution, radicals from Spain, anarchists from Spain were scattered around the world in exile. And you mentioned that Stuart Christie came into contact with them. How did he, uh, how did Stuart Christie come to be arrested for attempting to assassinate the Spanish dictator Francisco Franco when Christie was a mere 18 years old? I think it's important to, to recognize that while the, the Spanish Revolution was utterly crushed and defeated, as well as thousands tens of thousands being forced into exile and many more were murdered, were garroted, were shot, were put in concentration camps. Your typical, you know, brutal dictatorship uh, kind of stuff. That the, the Spanish anarchist movement, uh, while forced largely into exile, never stopped fighting and never stopped trying to overturn the dictatorship. And there were several waves of, of these anarchist militants who carried on the struggle against Franco. Um, most, perhaps, uh, you know, initially, the, 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 the militants that 
that were forced into exile in France immediately provided the core of much of the Spanish resistance to, to, to Hitler and the Nazis. And indeed, such was the importance of the, the Spanish anarchist fighters in, the, in the, the Free French Army and the French resistance that it was actually the Spanish anarchist um, armored division which was given the honor, so to speak, of liberating Paris, meaning the first uh, French so-called uh, so troops to liberate Paris were actually the Spanish anarchist uh, armored division. And there's, you know, famous pictures of them, uh, you know, their tanks with Deruti and that kind of thing written on them. So these same fighters and the generations that came, their children, their uh, younger siblings, etc., carried on. Uh, and uh, by the 60s, when Stuart became politically active as a, as a teenager, there was a new generation of these Spanish anarchists and fighters um, who tried repeatedly to assassinate uh, Franco. Um, so when, when Stuart had moved to London as a teenager looking for work, he, he came into contact with one of the circles of these Spanish exiles and through them um, became involved in, in one of the many uh, failed plots to, to assassinate the great dictator. Um, and he was sent to France where comrades there um, gave him explosives, which he was to smuggle into Spain, you know, posing as a as a as a Scottish tourist, uh, which of course he was in many ways, just a, a Scottish tourist with a particular intent. But the anarchist group that that he was working with, as a, as this explosive courier, in every sense of the term, uh, had been actually infiltrated by the the, the Francoist secret police, and so. Both Stuart and his uh, his contact in Spain were both arrested um, and, and caught red-handed, shall we say. Let's take a listen now to an audio excerpt of Stuart Christie discussing his involvement in the plot to assassinate the Spanish dictator Francisco Franco and his subsequent imprisonment. My role was, uh, the objective was to assassinate Franco uh, at um, during the football, the final of the the League Cup at Santiago Bernabeu uh, in 1964, my job was to transport the explosives there. But in fact, it, uh, by the time I got there, the cup final had been had been played. So we decided to leave it until uh, later on in the, in the year. But um, I was turned out that the police were waiting for me because I, the organization had been fairly successfully infiltrated and uh, the secret police were, were waiting for me when I arrived in Madrid with the explosives and the detonators and the instructions. And I walked into, into trap, which so I was taken from when I was arrested, I was taken to security headquarters, kept there for a week in the in the dungeons, and then subjected to a summary court martial, council of war, they call them, and sentenced to 20 years, uh, of which I served uh, three and a half, uh, mainly because I was uh, I was a foreigner. Had I been a Spaniard as my uh, the comrade uh, I was liaising with, who was a Spaniard, he ended up uh, as the longest serving political prisoner in Spain. He wasn't released until 1976, 1977 in fact, after Franco had died. And that's Stuart Christie talking about being jailed for trying to assassinate Franco. Ramsey Kinnan, how was Stuart Christie eventually freed? Stuart was uh, initially sentenced to death by the garrote, which was uh, Franco's favorite way of, um, which is a, is a device which uh, strangles you. So it's a, a derivation of hanging, I guess. Um, and uh, the, the, the sentence was, was commuted to uh, 20 years in prison. And uh, in prison, um, of course, uh, Stuart Christie was imprisoned with a bunch of other Republican and anarchist prisoners 
And so, uh, ironically enough, not only in prison did he uh, teach himself, teach himself uh, Spanish and several other languages and took various A-levels and continued his own ed uh, self-education, but of course that um, further deepened his ties with this kind of militant, underground, active anarchist movement. Um, he was released, uh, he served two years in the, in, in the Franco prison and it was released after a kind of international campaign, um, which included signatories like um, the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. So there's a kind of international liberal kind of outrage that um, this young Scottish lad being sentenced to death and or 20 years in prison, and this was too much. Uh, so I say eventually he was released well, after two years and made his way back to the UK. And when he arrived back in the UK, what did anarchism in mid-20th century Britain look like? You've described the influence, the tremendous influence of, of the Spanish anarchists, but there were other currents, other competing currents in mid-century. Can you describe them to us and how they contended with each other? Well, the period that we're talking about is, of course, the, the 60s. And the prevailing wisdom or the prevailing narrative in history is that the 60s were the which they undoubtedly were, were in many ways a retreat from the aforementioned class struggle and was the rise of various other constituencies, often fueled by the so-called counterculture. This is undoubtedly the case, as in America and elsewhere, there was the rise of gay liberation. The Gay Liberation Front was actually formed in the UK in 1971. There was the, the the spectacular reinvigoration of the campaign for nuclear disarmament of which Stuart had been a member um, several years earlier as part of his political education and that came to the forefront um, in the UK with the so-called Committee of 100 who were a direct action group who managed through a series of spectacular actions to not only as is as well known kind of sit down in the road and block traffic, but more importantly, as part of the Spies for Peace, which were largely comprised of anarchists, exposed the kind of Britain's secret state's plans for winning and surviving a nuclear war. So they uncovered um, the sites of all these secret uh, installations and underground bunkers and command centres and, you know, publicised this. The anarchists that were doing this were of a more and their origins were not only pacifists, so had a different kind of militancy from the, the Spanish anarchists that we talked about before, or the Stuart Christie's. And they also came from a more, they were a more middle class and kind of educated strain of anarchism, I guess. Um, much of it was involved around um, culture. I guess the equivalent would be actually here in America would be the folks that coalesced around Kenneth Rexroth here in the Bay Area and the, that same current which, out of which, of course, KPFA came out of in terms of that anarcho-pacifist group and tendency. I think what's forgotten in, the, in this narration of the 50s and 60s and, if you like, the roots of the, of the, the explosion of, of the new social movements of the 60s is that that militant working class never went away. And so there's this almost kind of false juxtaposition or false counter narrative that if there was the rise of these new social movements, uh, that somehow uh, the organized, angry, militant working class, I guess they're just ignored and, and written out of history. And um, as in the US, that there's also the same in, in the UK and in Europe. That, that that militant strain of self-organized working class activity never went away. And that was the milieu which Stuart, on his return uh, from Spanish prison, um, kind of dived into headlong. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and today we're remembering the Scottish anarchist publisher and writer Stuart Christie. 
I'm joined by Ramsey Canan, founder of AK Press and PM Press, who knew Christie personally. And we're talking about the larger context in which Christie lived his life and the way that he in turn influenced his times. I'd like to ask you, Ramsey, about the Anarchist Black Cross, an organization with uh, a history prior to Christie, but that in 1967, Stuart Christie reformed the Anarchist Black Cross with Albert Meltzer in the UK. Can you tell us about the history of the Anarchist Black Cross and the purposes that it served for someone like Stuart Christie? So the Anarchist Black Cross was founded originally in Russia, uh, I believe during Tsarist times, um, as a as a basically as a prisoner support organization um, for and by anarchists, um, and it, it it was a long tradition, or it helped codify and systematize a long tradition of anarchists support and material aid for for prisoners and this kind of solidarity was um, practical solidarity was continued by um, anarchist emigres in america and i guess probably most the most famous case of that that that, that folks would be aware of listening would be the sacco and vanzetti um, trial sacco and vanzetti were two anarchist militants uh, Italian immigrants who were accused of, of murder, obviously falsely, they were set up and uh, there was a, a large international campaign um, for their, for clemency, I guess, and, and release. As we discussed previously, uh, being imprisoned uh, was actually uh, a vital educational experience for Stuart, not only the experience himself of, of suffering the deprivations of prison, but more importantly, the contacts that he made with his fellow prisoners, uh, political and otherwise. So inspired by this experience, the good and the bad, um, when he returned from prison, he joined up with uh, Albert Meltzer. Albert Meltzer was a, a longtime anarchist and at this point was a veteran. Albert was, uh, I think, born in in the early 1920s, um, and most famously, was accused by Emma Goldman of being a, a hothead and a, a far too radical for her. But uh, Albert was part of this tradition of, of working class anarchist militants, actually worked as a typesetter on Fleet Street for the Daily Telegraph, ironically enough. A conservative paper. Uh, yeah, the Daily Telegraph being, yes, one of the most notorious uh, right-wing so-called quality newspapers in the UK. Um, it's considerably to the right of the of Rupert Murdoch's Times, if that can be believed. So they, they basically resuscitated, took the name and the ideas of the Anarchist Black Cross and resuscitated it. The Anarchist Black Cross served uh, a, a dual complementary purpose. One was to offer material... Um, aid um, and intellectual aid to those imprisoned and equally importantly it served a way of not only connecting um, prisoners of various struggles but also in effect providing these prisoners with with education and the Black Cross actually had a, a fantastic effect in, in more ways than one meaning in the 60s and 70s and 80s, of course, there was this wave of militant struggle across the world on top of the, the student struggles and gay liberation and, and the women's movement and the environmental and anti-nuclear movements that were springing up. Um, all of those struggles were complemented by more militant activities and the militants of those activities found themselves in prison in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And once in prison, they were largely lost and forgotten by everyone, including the movements that they largely came out of. So there were many uh, in America, for example, many former Black Panthers or members of the Black Liberation Army, which was a more militant armed struggle offshoot 
of the of the Black Panther Party. Um, so many of those militants, um, the most famous of whom is, of course, Asata Shakur, to listeners here, and perhaps also David Gilbert, whose son, Chesa Boudin, is now the San Francisco DA. And David Gilbert is still in prison, being involved in a shootout which killed several cops. So the, the likes of these kind of prisoners were uh, scattered across the world were largely ignored by almost everyone except the Anarchist Black Cross. And so the Anarchist Black Cross were both giving them material sustenance, you know, we're sending them aid packages, we're sending them money, but were part of the circulation of, of ideas within prison. And in fact, typically the only competition in prison is of course the, the, uh, the ministrations of religious groups um, for prisoners, for their hearts and minds, shall we say. And they, they had a phenomenal effect. Several of these, um, uh, so again in America, several uh, former Black Panthers and Black Liberation Army um, prisoners uh, converted to anarchism, if converted is the right phrase because of this this contact um, through the, the Black Cross. Similarly, the Black Cross was a conduit for support for militant prisoners across the world um, and across, uh, particularly across mainland Europe, which was going through its own convulsions, shall we say, of, of these much more militant armed struggles. And uh, this was prevalent throughout Europe including in the UK. And in fact, Stuart Christie himself ended up standing accused of being part of one of those uh, militant groups in the 1970s. The Angry Brigade carried out a series of bombings in the UK over a two-year period. The trial of the Angry Brigade was one of the longest in British history, and Stuart Christie was charged and eventually acquitted of being a member of the Angry Brigade. Can you tell us about that trial and what you make of Christie's acquittal? Well, I think it's important to put that trial firstly in the in the wider context. So Europe wide, there was this wave of militant activity. The militant activity was not just trying to assassinate Franco and it wasn't just the, the spectacular and infamous actions of the likes of the of the Red Army faction in Germany or the Red Brigades in Italy who were, you know, assassinating bankers and politicians. But they also flowed into and were part of that wider milieu, for example, of um, what, what we would call these days national liberation struggles. So it was part of the, the national liberation struggles in, in, the, in South and Latin America. It would be part of the, the national liberation struggle in Ireland or in Palestine. So it was part of this wider milieu of this militant activity. So in Britain, the, the so-called Anger Brigade, and they were called the Anger Brigade by the media because they, after each of their actions, the Anger Brigade did not kill anyone. And their actions were obviously, deliber uh, were aimed, if you like, or deliberately meant to, to mean that there would be no loss of life. So they, they staged what would be called more spectacular actions, which definitely included bombing and included machine gunning the Spanish embassy, obviously in solidarity with um, um, the ongoing work of, of militants against the, the Franco dictatorship. They also included uh, protesting against the, the Miss World pageant happening in the UK. So they were, and they also included um, attacking the, the, the then um, um, minister uh, in the Edward Heath government in the early 70s, uh, making connections with um, the strikes that were going on in the UK. So they were, again, they were very broad-based, their actions of the Angry Brigade, but they were also very, very targeted, so to speak. Uh, there were 10 people put on trial. The, the 10 folks were uh, a range of anarchist militants. Stuart has always claimed that he was picked up largely because of his reputation. Um, 
and uh, I believe Stuart was arrested um, driving Albert Meltzer's car and there was a whole bunch of uh, guns and explosives or detonators were in, in that car. Several of the, of the 10 defendants were, were acquitted, including Stuart. And understandably, Stuart maintained that uh, he was innocent. One, of course, is always innocent unless one is proven guilty. Nevertheless, the, the state was obviously incredibly unhappy with this. And as, as you mentioned, it was actually the longest criminal trial in British history. It actually, the, the trial itself was over a year. But the, the, the jury did acquit some of the defendants, including Stuart. Um, Stuart was, uh, in effect, forced to, 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 to leave the mainland and ended up in the Orkneys, in the Isle of Sandy, in Scotland, where he continued his, his political agitation and his, I guess, what these days would be called networking. And the, the Anger Brigade trial was one of the many punctuations in this kind of long, several decades of this militant activity of which anarchists were wittingly or unwittingly, you know, part of that web. Uh, the anarchist Black Cross um, in, its, in its new formation uh, spread out again across the world and across these militant centers and like Stuart and the some of the anger brigade defendants were likewise targeted by by the various elements of the state's um, repressive security apparatus shall we say um, most famously uh, Giuseppe Pinelli um, who was the the leading militant in the anarchist Black Cross in Italy was uh, arrested and falsely accused of the Piazza Fontana bombings in in um, Milan, and was most it was infamously thrown out of a several-story high window of a police station, which that event that tragic event was what uh, Dario Fo wrote about in his probably his most famous play, The Accidental Death of an Anarchist. And and that incident that you're talking about of what he had been accused of doing was part of a wave of far-right wing terror that was was committed in that period in the 1970s and beyond to try and sort of frame the left or frame radicals for repression. And that was a, an issue that Stuart Christie was very deeply interested in. Can you tell us about his writings around the question of the threat from the far right? So, as we've been discussing, the 70s or the long 60s or however one, however one wants to describe this period was a, a time of incredible ferment. It was, there was all kinds of struggles going on, armed and otherwise, and unsurprisingly the state was uh, pretty horrified by this and did its damnedest in a, a whole variety of methods to, to counteract this, um, again on a global scale. As is now well documented, uh, various forces, including the World Anti-Communist League, um, came together and engineered a whole bunch of strategies, shall we say. Um, one of the most infamous was the so-called strategy of tension, or black terror it was called, where they engineered various bombings and other, I guess what would today be called false flag operations which they then typically blamed on the left, on the anarchists, and used these as a pretext to, to ramp up kind of state repression, to pass more draconian laws, supposedly against terrorists. In Germany, you had the notorious um, Article 129A, which basically meant for that that to be in support in any way, shape or form of the Red Army faction was in itself a crime. So to even, so again, they're just basically reenacting kind of overtly fascist laws to supposedly clamp down on various struggle that's going on. 
the the flip side of that of course is that this this militant struggle was very much international and the networks that Stuart was a part of and that Stuart helped to revitalize and kickstart so Stuart through his writing and his publishing was one of many hubs of this incredible network of militants and activists which was global and and was perceived as, as this as this global threat by 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 the the various states and the various forces of reaction um, and of course we're talking largely about liberal democracies so when we say the forces of reaction we're actually talking about the liberal democracies in the uk in italy in germany uh, again in south america at the time I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio, and we're talking about the writer, militant, and anarchist publisher Stuart Christie, who died August of last year. I'm speaking to Ramsey Kanan, who knew Stuart Christie, uh, himself a publisher of anarchist literature. In 1972, Stuart Christie started Cienfuegos Press, from which he published a, a whole range of radical and anarchist literature. And yet, anarchism itself faced sort of changing forces and different forms because in the late 1970s, there was a renewed interest in anarchism with the emergence of punk. And yet, the anarchism of that time was not the kind of anarchist tradition that Christie himself came out of. How did he, how would you sort of relate Christie in the context of that renewal of the anarchist tradition in the 1970s and 80s and, and beyond? Like much of life, I think it's, it's, it's messy and it's complicated. And there's always a real problem, I think, for historians or analysts that we, we look back and we try and fit things into simple boxes. So again, the, the simple narrative would be that the the Second World War was the death knell of organized labor and that militant working class tradition. And then following the war with the likes of the, um, the Lou Hills and the Kenneth Rexroths and the Alex Comforts and the such like in the UK, that there was this rise of a more middle class, pacifist, quietist in many ways, perhaps more academic tradition of, of anarchism. And there was these mad hotheads that went around with guns and bombs at the same time, but they were really a kind of lunatic fringe. Um, and then that punk came along and that punk was this entryway drug to uh, anarchism, radical ideas, which undoubtedly it was, but that the politics of punk were this what I myself have referred to in the past as kind of militant liberalism. So again, punk, uh, certainly in the UK, really kick-started again or revitalised the, the oft-mentioned campaign for nuclear disarmament. Um, so again, it went from being a, having a few thousand members to having hundreds of thousands of members. And in the early 80s, providing the biggest demonstration at that point that the, that the UK had ever seen when there was a quarter of a million people assembled in, in Hyde Park and were addressed by the likes of the legendary historian E.P. Thompson. So again, the narrative would be again, it was yet again the death of the workers' struggles or and certainly the militant wing of workers' struggles and again the rise of this more in many ways socially acceptable middle class, youth culture. So you had the 60s and the long hairs, and then you have the, in the late 70s, early 80s, you have punk and the spiky hairs, but really they both just want kind of love and peace and understanding and, and all that's just fine. Now, there's an element of truth to all of that, but it's also a lot more complicated and actually uh, there's a lot more of elements of falsehood, shall we say, than truth. What one did see in the in the in the late 70s was this continuance of the militant struggle and and similarly of state repression and what you saw with the rise of punk was punk was this gateway drug for many folks to to rediscovering anarchism 
But the reason that punk took the form it, it did, and the reason that uh, particularly what became known as anarcho-punk and its main um, progenitors, its main, uh, the vanguard would be the, the bands Crass and Poison Girls. Um, these are two separate bands, not Crass and Poison Girls. It's not one band. There's a band called Crass and a band called Poison Girls. Um, the members of both bands were actually much older and the members of both bands were themselves, like Stuart Christie, veterans of the 60s. Uh, some had better politics than others. But what, 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 what it meant was, so for example, how these movements uh, came together and in many ways had never really been apart. So in 1979, so, you know, six or seven years after the Angry Brigade trial, there was a second trial, again, of anarchist militants. Um, called the Persons Unknown trial, in which Persons Unknown were conspiring with other Persons Unknown to do unknown things which the state didn't like. Britain has, uh, unlike the US, Britain doesn't have a Bill of Rights or a Constitution, and so Britain, all British law is based on precedent, which basically means whatever, you know, more or less whatever judges decide. Um, and hence, Britain has two catch-all political laws, which, which they use to go after uh, political militants. One is conspiracy, which was the person's unknown trial, and the other one is incitement, which of course is becoming increasingly common here in, in the land of the free. And these are vague enough that they can be used and thrown against anyone. So the person's unknown were a bunch of anarchists, including Irish members of the anarchist Black Cross. Um, who were accused of conspiring with persons unknown to do unknown things which may or may not have included, you know, causing explosions and whatnot. Again, it was a, a long trial, but the, the both of the bands, Crass and Poisoned Girls, released a benefit single for the persons unknown defendants. The defendants were again all acquitted in this case, and the money used from this wildly successful punk rock single um, was used to fund uh, a, a new anarchist centre in, in, in London and this, that centre was called the Centro Iberico, um, meaning the, the, the Spanish centre or the Iberian centre. And this brought together, uh, sometimes in stark contrast, the old militants. So it was a mixture of these uh, now ageing Spanish anarchists and this new young, uh, the new younger generation of punk rockers. So the Central Iberico not only had cultural events and you know speakers and the usual kind of dinners and whatnot, and then it would also have punk concerts where the likes of Crass or the Poison Girls would play, presumably much to the somewhat deafening bemusement of the more elderly Spanish anarchists. The point I'm trying to make with this anecdote is it's not there's not there's these like um, strict demarcations. And while undoubtedly um, many of the trappings or many of the articulations of of the of the the rise of punk rock in the late seventies and early eighties um, was met with bemusement and befuddlement by some of the anarchist militants, it's undoubtedly the case that in the uh, certainly in the UK that punk rock was a largely working class movement its adherents and practitioners were largely working class and that through the the militancy and the struggle of the punks that they very quickly uh, ended up from being supporting the campaign for nuclear disarmament cnd in the late 70s and early 80s i myself you know had one of my first initiation to the world of politics was going on a a CND march in Scotland in 1979, aged 13, as you know, Stuart Christie had, had had a similar initiation 35 years before. But like Stuart and like myself, punk and this new wave of anarchism very quickly moved leftwards or very quickly embraced that uh, more traditional, if you like, working class struggle. Uh, exemplified by um, in the self-same crass and poison girls in this new wave of, of punk rockers uh, by 1982 
had organized the first uh, shutdown of the city, the city being the city of London, the financial banking center. So again, they're preceding Occupy by, uh, you know, almost 40 years in terms of targeting finance and world capital and the bankers. So Stop the City was flooding the city of London, which is actually this, you know, kind of square mile area within London where all the financial institutions are and doing a mixture of direct action, of spray painting, of street theatre, of blocking the streets, of to basically literally try and slow down business. And they did. It was a surprise. And, um, you know, the <laughs> business was disrupted for a few hours which again will have cost the stock exchange millions and millions of pounds. And then in 1984, there was of course the historic famous miners strike in Britain. And the last tour that Crass, the kind of godfathers of this political punk undertook before they broke up in 1984, the entire tour was a benefit for the miners, meaning all of the concerts they played were um, the money's raised was given to the miners and several of the actual concerts themselves were held in kind of in mining villages and, and whatnot. Indeed, the last concert Crass ever played was in Aberdeer in, in Wales uh, in, in and for a mining community. So I say I think this is a, there's a real danger to make this kind of false dichotomy between so-called middle class politics and so-called working class politics. And that Stuart again with his tireless propaganda efforts was always making the connections drawing folks in building the bridges and kind of filling in our kind of the intellectual gaps and the analytical gaps um, through his i mean decades of just tireless tireless coordination networking and, and kind of uh, propaganda propagandistic efforts Ramsey Kanan, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Ramsey Kanan. He is the founder of AK Press and PM Press. We've been discussing the ideas and century, really, of publisher and writer Stuart Christie, an anarchist uh, militant and publisher who died in August of 2020. Ramsey Kanan's Press, PM Press, has published Stuart Christie's work, and I should disclose my own connection with that press. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time.